Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. Let's pray. Lord, the one thing that separates our faith from all other faiths is your amazing grace. For every other religion that claims to be a faith is really not built on faith, it's built on works. But you're the only one who tells us you can't do enough works. You can't be good enough. You have to rely on me and I will give you eternal life as a gift of grace. Lord, we thank you for your grace. And Lord, I pray that as we open your word and we read your word, that your words will just pop off this page and sink deep into our hearts. And that the words that we follow with will be words that you will touch. And I pray, Lord, that when we leave this place today, we will know we've been with the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We're still in a series from Hebrews. If you'd like to turn with me there to Hebrews chapter 7, we'll read beginning with verse 1 just momentarily. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. Back in 1996, I was the pastor of Concord Baptist Church. We had a Thursday night Bible study there uh, that was uh, co-taught between me and Brother Reuben Smith. Some of you remember Reuben from preaching the revival back in the spring. Reuben and I tag-teamed teaching on Thursday nights at a Bible study there, and and there were people from churches all over the area who came. We averaged anywhere from 80 to 120 people at that Thursday night Bible study that would be held in the fellowship hall of Concord Baptist Church. We'd start at 7 o'clock, And uh, either Reuben or I would start out for about 45 minutes, would take about a 10-minute break, and then whoever taught the first half of the time, the other person would teach the latter half, and we'd go from 7 to 8.30. I remember on one particular uh, Thursday night, it was in the fall, 1996, um, as we started the Bible study, Reuben started teaching it, and I looked over to one end of the fellowship hall where there was an entrance, and there was a young lady who came in that I'd never seen before. She was dressed all in black. She had black shoes. She had black pants, dress pants. She had on a a tight-fitted but attractive um, black jacket. She had on a white shirt. She had on a black tie. She had on a black hat. She had chocolate black eyes. And her eyebrows were tinted black. Her lips were a kind of a pale gray. And her face was a pale white. She was gothic before I knew what gothic was. I thought gothic was a cathedral. I didn't know it was a type of dress And so 1996, she comes in gothic. She comes in the end door, she's a little late, and she sits on the end. She looks like she's around 20 years old, maybe 22. 
We get through with the Bible study at 8.30 and she approaches a lady who is seated near her and she's asking who the pastor was. She wanted to talk to the pastor. Well, that would have been me. And so they brought this young lady to me in the fellowship hall and she said, are you the pastor? And I said, yes. She says, I'd like to talk with you. I said, okay. I said, what, what, uh, what would you like uh, to talk about? What do you need? And she said, well, I'd like to talk to you in private. I said, okay. Well, my office was nearby, and I asked a few people to not leave until I was uh, through talking to this lady, and so they hung around, went into my office at Concord Baptist Church, flipped on the light, and uh, I told her, I said, have a seat, and I went around behind my desk, and I was seated there, and I said, what can I do for you? She said, I want you to pray for me. I said, okay, I'll be glad to. I said, uh, I'll be glad to pray for you. I said, what is your name? She said, that doesn't matter. I said, okay. I said, you, you don't want me to know your name? She said, no, my name really doesn't matter. I said, okay. I said, well, what is the situation that you'd like for me to pray about? She said, that, that is not something that matters either, just so that you pray. I said, okay. So uh, she doesn't want me to know her name. She doesn't want me to know the situation, but she wants me to pray. And... She's dressed gothic, and I'm thinking, I need to get out of here as soon as I can, you know. And so I said, well, okay, um, well, I'll just, you just want me to pray just kind of a general prayer for you and the situation you're in without knowing anything more about it. She said, yes, that's exactly right. I said, okay. And so I bowed my head, and I started praying. Now, I'm a little nervous about this thing and a bit suspicious, and so as I'm praying... I'm peeking. I'm peeking just out of one eye, not the other one, just one. It was just kind of 30% peeking. She was watching me. <laughs> Have you ever prayed for somebody, just you and them, and you're thinking when you bow your head to pray, you got your eyes closed, and you're thinking they've got their eyes closed, and so feeling a little bit suspicious, you 30% open up your right eye, and that person is looking at you. And immediately you shut your eye because you don't want them to know that you were peeking at them, but they were looking at you, so they know you're peeking. And I made this a very quickie prayer. And as soon as I got through, she immediately stood up. She smiled. She said, thank you. She went out the side door. It's dark outside by 830. Uh, at Concord Church, there is, uh, there is a huge cemetery, about 15 acres worth of cemetery, uh, the cemetery now is about 175 years old, so it's one of the oldest cemeteries in the state of Georgia. And she went around the church, the, the church building, back into the cemetery, and I never saw her again to this day. I've never seen her again. I don't know who she was. I don't know where she came from. I don't know who her parents were. I don't know where she went. And it was one of the strangest experiences I have ever had in my life. It was my experience of being asked to pray for a mystery person. And I don't know why. Uh, I guess maybe the appearances and some of the oddness about her, but I've always thought, man, was that some sort of theophany of Satan or something? I don't know. Whatever it was, for sure, I, I, I had a, an experience with a mystery person. The writer of Hebrews is going to bring up another mystery person, another person who shows up, 
and you don't know where he came from, and he, he does some weird things, and then he disappears, and we never see him again. Except, in this case, the mystery person, the mystery man, is not uh, connected by this writer with Satan. He is connected with Jesus. And so the title of this message is Jesus' Connection to a Mystery Man. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. This Melchizedek, that's his name, by the way, Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, Without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people. That is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one sense, in the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth to Melchizedek through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. The theme of the epistle to the Hebrews is that Jesus is better. He's better than anything that uh, you could ever offer or embrace as a substitute to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a congregation of people who are in deep jeopardy of abandoning their simple Christian faith. And there are a number of reasons for uh, their potential abandonment of the faith. There are those who are disappointed by uh, Jesus, disappointed by God. There are others who are disappointed by some of God's people, and so they're thinking about abandoning faith. There are those who have, who have said, oh, I'm not abandoning faith, but they'll take some peripheral issue like the doctrine of angels, and they will make it front and center, and they will say, you have to believe what I believe about angels if you are a true, effective Christian. And by virtue of taking a non-essential and making it essential, they have shifted away from, drifted away from the Christian faith. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing to them, trying to get them to hold with a white-knuckled grip to their Christian faith. One of the things that he's been saying to them is, is that Jesus is our great high priest. He is the one who is our intercessor between us and God the Father. And he is the perfect intercessor. He is the one who prays for us as we're praying. And sometimes he prays for us when we find ourselves unable to pray. And even when we don't feel like praying, he's interceding for us with the Heavenly Father. Jesus is our great high priest. Well, many of the people to whom this writer is writing were Jewish Christians. 
who were thinking about giving up Christianity and going back to their old Jewish faith, Judaism. And one of the hallmarks of the old Jewish faith was that they had priests. The priests served in the temple. And you would go to the priest and you would confess your sins to the priest and the priest would make a sacrifice on your behalf, do some, uh, perform some other rituals on your behalf in order to intercede for you with God. These priests in, in the Jewish faith had to all come from the tribe of Levi. There are 12 tribes of Israel. One of the tribes is the tribe of Levi, and all the priests came from the tribe of Levi. There was no priest in in ancient Israel, who did not come from the tribe of Levi, who traced their ancestors back to Aaron, Moses' brother Aaron, as a priest. And so when the writer of Hebrews says Jesus is our high priest, the people to whom he is writing are saying this, wait, 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 wait. Big problem with that. Big problem with that. Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. Jesus does not trace his ancestry back to Moses' brother Aaron. So he can't possibly be a high priest, let alone a great high priest, let alone a superior high priest to the priests that we have in Jewish faith. And so the writer of Hebrews says, that's true. Jesus doesn't trace his lineage through Levi. He traces it through the tribe of Judah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But the writer of Hebrews says, but he is... Though he's not a priest after the order of Levi, he is priest after the order of a higher priest, a better priest, a greater priest, and that priest's name was Melchizedek. He's mentioned Melchizedek a couple of times in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, and then again in chapter 6, verse 20. And now he goes into greater detail about this Melchizedek, a greater priest than the Levitical priests, he says. Now we're introduced to Melchizedek back in Genesis chapter 14. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are two places where we see Melchizedek. In all of the 39 books of the Old Testament, there are two places, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. Those are the only two places. This is a mysterious character. The Bible tells us that Abraham and his nephew Lot, who had spent much time together, decided to part ways. They part ways in Genesis chapter 13. Lot takes the fertile ground that surrounds the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is left with the land of Canaan. Canaan at that time does not look very fruitful, but it will become fruitful. So Abraham is in Canaan, Lot is in Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Bible says that a war erupted between uh, two groups of nations. There's one group of nation that was led by four kings. There was another group of nations that was led by five kings. And the four kings made war on the five kings, and they defeated the five kings and took away all of their uh, surviving uh, citizens into captivity, including Lot, Abraham's nephew. And the word came to Abraham. The word came to Abraham uh, about this. Now, in chapter 14, verse 11... The Bible says this, the four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew, Lot, and his possessions since Lot was living in Sodom. Now, when word of Lot's capture reaches Abraham, Abraham recruits some renegade soldiers. 
And he goes after these four kings for the purpose of defeating them and rescuing Lot. In Genesis 14, beginning with verse 17, we find these words. After Abram returned from defeating King Keterleomer and the kings allied with him, and then skip to verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be, the, be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, after this episode... We don't hear any more about Melchizedek. We don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went. We don't know anything about his parents. We don't know anything about his death. And the writer of Hebrews is going to pick up on those things in just a moment. The next time we hear about him is in Psalm 110. And in that uh, psalm, we find these words. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. And then he says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, strange question, who is this Melchizedek? Do you believe there are some people, there was an early church father in the second century, his name was Origen, he believed that Melchizedek was an angel who appeared to Abram as he was coming back from defeating those four kings and rescuing Lot. There is someone else who who believed that Melchizedek was Enoch. I don't know if you remember Enoch from the early chapters of Genesis, but the Bible says that Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. What that means is that he walked so closely with God that he didn't die. Instead, as he grew older and closer and closer to God, God just transferred him from heaven, from earth to heaven without him having to experience death. Somebody said he just walked with God until he just kept on walking until he was with God. And some people say that Melchizedek was Enoch. There are other people who believe that Melchizedek was, was what's called a pre-incarnate form of Jesus, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Now, pre-incarnate is a word which means he appeared before he was born, as the Gospels tell us. When we think about Jesus, uh, about God coming to earth in the form of Jesus, being born a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, that is the incarnation of Christ. He became a human being. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus lived for an eternity before he was ever born in Bethlehem. And so there was a pre-incarnate, pre-birth existence of Jesus. And some people believe that Melchizedek was an appearance of Jesus before Jesus was ever even born in Bethlehem. Most people, however, believe that Melchizedek was simply a man. But this man, Melchizedek, has some features that make us, and certainly made the writer of Hebrews, think about Jesus. And I want to give you some of those, some of those similarities, some of those comparisons that he makes for us. First of all, Melchizedek was both priest and king. Verse 1, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. This is an unusual thing. Because if you study the Old Testament, you'll find this. The priests, who had to be Levites, could not be kings. So it was never a situation where you had a priest 
who is also a king. Also, every king that you look at in Israel and Judah, never was any king also a priest. It simply didn't happen. But Melchizedek was both king of Salem and he was priest of the Most High God. In that way, he is like Jesus because Jesus is our ultimate high priest, but he is also king of all the universe. And so Melchizedek, the writer of Hebrews says, is much like Jesus. Secondly, Melchizedek was the king of righteousness. The king of righteousness. The Hebrew word melech means king, and the Hebrew word zedek means righteousness. Together, you put those words together, and and what it really means is king of righteousness. And so Melchizedek, by virtue of his name, was the king of uh, of righteousness. And righteousness has to come before peace, which we'll get to in just a moment. Well, who is Jesus? Jesus is the king of all righteousness. In fact, if we are to be declared righteous, it will only come through the merits of Jesus Christ, who is the king of righteousness, because we have no righteousness of our own. If we have any righteousness at all at any time in our lives, it will only be because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that comes to us when we invite Him to be our Savior and Lord. Third, Melchizedek was not only king of righteousness, he was the king of peace. The Bible says here in verse 1 that Melchizedek was the king of Salem. That's probably an uh, an early connotation of Jerusalem. But the word Salem comes from the the most prominent Hebrew word in the Hebrew language, the word shalom. You go to Israel today and uh, someone comes up, the first thing they're going to say to you is not hello. They're not going to say grace to you. They're going to say shalom. And it means peace to you. When we say here that Melchizedek was the king of Salem or the king of shalom, we mean that he was the king of Peace, because that's what shalom means. Well, obviously, Jesus is the prince of peace. The prophet said he'll be the prince of peace. The Bible says in the Gospels that he came to give people peace. Whenever we invite Christ to be our Savior, he gives us in our hearts peace. Whenever we have a loved one or we ourselves are nearing the point of death, we don't have to despair like someone who has no hope, because in Christ we have peace. And we know that death is not a period at the end of a sentence. It is a comma in the middle of the sentence. And because of Christ, the best is yet to come. We have peace. Melchizedek was both priest and king. So was Jesus. Melchizedek was king of righteousness. Jesus is king of righteousness. Melchizedek was king of peace. Jesus is the very prince of peace. And then Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Verse uh, number six. This man, Melchizedek, did not trace his descent from Levi like most of the other priests. Yet he collected a tent from Abraham and he blessed Abraham who had the promises. Who had the promises. You know who has the power to bless you? Now, you might be a blessing to someone else. But you actually don't have the power to bless someone. Only Jesus 
as the son of God has the power to bless someone or to make you a blessing to someone. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, this king of righteousness, king of peace, priest and king, blessed Abraham. In the same way, Jesus, the priest and king, king of righteousness and king of peace, is the one who blesses us. He blesses us with his presence. He blesses us with his love. He blesses us with his salvation. He blesses us with the Christian walk of life, which is the best walk of life that anybody could ever have while on earth. Jesus blessed Melchizedek blessed Abraham and in the same way Jesus blesses us. And the writer says here that therefore the lesser is blessed by the better or the greater. In other words, by virtue of Melchizedek blessing Abraham, Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Now, to the Jewish people, there was nobody greater than Abraham. And so for the writer to say Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, he was by virtue saying Jesus is greater than anything in your Old Testament Jewish faith. He's greater than than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than the prophets. Jesus is better than all of them. Number five, Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham and thus from Levi. Verses four through six, he says this. He says, just think how great Melchizedek was. Even Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of the plunder. Abraham takes his renegade soldiers out and defeats the four kings who had captured Lot. He defeats them, rescues Lot, and then on the way back, he's got all this plunder. The things, the loot that he has taken from these kings probably would be equal today to literally billions of dollars worth of plunder. And he comes and he meets Melchizedek, this mysterious figure that we don't hear anything about beforehand or after. And he gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Occasionally somebody will come to me and they'll say, uh, they'll say, Preacher, you, be, you believe in tithing, giving a tenth of your income? I said, yes, I do. And they say, well, should I give a tenth of the gross or a tenth of the net? That's a sticky question, isn't it? Y'all get real quiet when I talk about stuff like that. Abraham gave a tenth of everything. A tenth of everything to Melchizedek. Why did he do that? Who do we give a tithe to? We say, well, we give it to the preacher. No, you don't. Well, we give it to the church. Well, yeah, you kind of do, but it's not really. You know who we give it to? When I give my tithe, when you give your tithe, we give it to the Lord. We give it to the Lord. It's not to the church, it's not to the staff, it's not to the preacher, it's not to the deacons. It's to the Lord that we give our tithes and our offerings. And so here is Abraham, he has this billions of dollars worth of plunder, he he meets Melchizedek on the way, and he gives a tenth of everything he has to Melchizedek. In that way, Melchizedek is much like Jesus. Now, here's an interesting thing. In Old Testament Israel... People would give their tithes to the Levite priests, the descendants of Levi. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, when Abraham gave his tithe to Melchizedek, he says in his DNA, in Abraham's DNA, was Levi. Because Levi had not come along yet. 
because you have Abraham's son Isaac and then Isaac's son Jacob, and then Jacob's sons included Levi. So Levi's not there yet, so he's still deep within the DNA of Abraham when Abraham gives a tithe. And so the writer of Hebrews says, by virtue of Levi still being in Abraham's DNA when he gave that tenth, Levi also gave a tenth. So the one to whom people were giving a tenth later on actually gave a tenth to Melchizedek. And people don't think that the Bible speaks of DNA. (laughs) Number six, Melchizedek had neither genealogy, father or mother, beginning or end of days. Verse three. Again, talking about Melchizedek, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Did Melchizedek really not have a father and mother? Did he really not die? The writer of Hebrews is picking up on the fact that the writer of Genesis doesn't tell us about the birth and genealogy and mom and dad of Melchizedek. Neither does the writer of Genesis tell us about his death. And so those are mysterious things about Melchizedek. And the writer of Hebrews, in a symbolic way, is saying, look, here's this man who has no genealogy to speak of, no parents to speak of, no beginning of days to speak of, no end of days to speak of. Does he not remind you of Jesus, who truly has no origin because he has eternally existed and he will have no end of days because he will eternally exist. And his only genealogy really is being having God as a father and Mary as a mother. Does not this person Melchizedek remind you of Jesus? And then because, number seven, because Melchizedek didn't have, because the writer of Genesis didn't record Melchizedek's death, The writer of Hebrews says he remains a priest forever. You see, the Levite priests were priests from age 30 to age 50, and then they had to retire. Most of the time, they didn't live far beyond 50 if they lived to 50. And so they would either retire at 50 or they would die and, of course, no longer be priests. But the writer of Hebrews says Melchizedek, because he doesn't have any recorded end of days, he remains a priest forever. And this is the kind of priest that Jesus is. Not one who dies like Levite or Aaron, but one who lives forever and remains priest forever. He is like Melchizedek, the king of righteousness and peace. And therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is better than any other priest you could ever imagine. He is better. Well, what does all this mean for us? You're thinking, so what? Melchizedek, so what? I'm not thinking about Melchizedek, so what? Here's, here, here really is what it is. The writer of Hebrews is saying, look, no matter what you might leave Jesus for, he's better than that. No matter what you might be tempted to leave Jesus and the Christian faith, the simple Christian faith for, Jesus is greater than whatever that is. And Jesus' plan for your life is better than anybody else's plan for your life. And mind you, there are other beings who have plans for you. Satan has plans for you to destroy you, to rip life out of you. But Jesus has a plan, and it's the best plan. But sometimes we're not persuaded of that. Sometimes we'll look at his plan, we'll look at some other plan, we think, you know, 
I think this plan looks more fun. This plan look, is going to make me happier. This plan looks more fulfilling. God, I know you're God, but I, I think I, I can handle this one. And the moment we take that pivot and eat that forbidden fruit, we fall. Why Melchizedek? Because Melchizedek was better than Levi. And Jesus was like Melchizedek. Jesus is better than anything else you will be tempted to embrace in your life. Don't, don't, don't let go of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you, Lord, for for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you are greater than any alternative. We thank you that you have a plan for each of us. It's a detailed plan. It's not some cookie-cutter generic plan. And that plan is the best plan for our lives and will always be. Lord, now we are approaching the invitation. It is the time when, more than any other time in a service, you change people's lives. There are people here who've never invited you to be their Savior and Lord, and they need to begin that relationship with you today by walking this aisle and saying, I want to invite Christ into my life. There are those who've been saved, but they need to come and be baptized. There are those who don't have a local church home and you're leading them here and they need to come and make that decision to make this church their church there are people here with problems and it will help them to bring those problems to this altar to you you are our high priest there are those of us who have abundant reasons to praise you and there's no better place to bring our praises to you than at the altar of prayer Lord, you've been speaking to some folks here already today. You've been telling them, I want to do something in your life. And I pray that this will be the day for life change for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.